1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 23. You can read a lot at home if you wish, as I read the scriptures right now. All things are lawful for me, but all things are not expedient. All things are lawful for me, all things edify not. Let no man seek his own, but every man another's wealth. Whatsoever is sold in the shambles, that's the marketplace, that eat, asking no questions for conscience sake. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If any of them that believe not bid you to a feast, and ye be disposed to go, whatsoever is set before you, eat, ask you no questions for conscience sake. But if any man say unto you, This is offered in sacrifice unto idols, eat not for his sake that showed it, and for conscience sake. For the earth is the Lord's, and the fullness thereof. Conscience, I say, not thine own, but of the other. For why is my liberty judge of another man's conscience? For if I by grace be a partaker, why am I evil spoken of? For of that for which I give thanks. Whether therefore you eat or drink, or whatsoever ye do, do all to the glory of God. And you ought to say an amen to that. Amen? Giving none offense, neither to the Jews, nor to the Gentiles, nor to the church of God. Even as I please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of many, that they may be saved. Father, tonight, bless the reading of your word. Bless the study of your word. Lord, we're getting into a subject that is probably not preached very often because of its complexity. And then going from the, from the customs of that day to its application, Lord, the exercise of liberty. I pray first of all, Lord, tonight that you'll help us to have a good understanding of the liberty we have in Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord, when you saved us. You saved us, Lord, from the bondage of sin. And you gave us liberty, Lord, for, from all those things we used to be under. But at the same time, we're not to use our liberty for an opportunity or as a license for sin. And so, Lord, we need to grasp that. We need to realize being saved doesn't mean that we can go back to the same old, old sinful lifestyle. Secondly, Lord, I pray that you strengthen every conscience. I appreciate how Paul addressed the matter of conscience in this study. And Lord, tonight I pray that you help us that we have strong consciences and good consciences. And Lord, not a weak conscience or a defiled conscience. And I pray this evening you'll help us to be considerate of others. Lord, sometimes we can get so caught up with just things that perhaps could be annoying or things perhaps that we just feel like we don't have much patience about, that, God, we forget that, Lord, we're in the people business. We're to take care of people and to serve them and to have a spirit of meekness towards them. And I pray, Father God, this morning, this evening, that the Holy Spirit would just help me to have the words I need to say and the wisdom I need to have. And I pray the fullness of the Spirit, so when spoken tonight, is spoken with clarity and love and yet, Lord, with conviction for the sake of your people. I pray that you'd use uh, what is said tonight, perhaps give spiritual healing for some who are hurting. I pray for wounds that would be closed up. I pray for hearts that would be encouraged. I pray for strengthening of our convictions. I pray that God will be stronger Christians, more mature Christians in the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Bless the study we pray now in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. The context of 1 Corinthians 8 through 10 is about Christian liberty or Christian freedom. Now it's important that we understand what liberty is. Liberty it means, in other words, what, what, what can we do 
or what are we allowed to do as a Christian without sinning against our, our own conscience or wounding the conscience of another person? Um, salvation through faith in Jesus Christ gives every believer freedom. You ought to be glad tonight that when Jesus Christ saved you, he gave you true freedom. And we don't have to be living under the, the guilt of, you know, what, what about, do I need to do this or do I need to do that? Because many people live under a set of do's and don'ts, which probably is good for some people, but that's not how, what God saved us for. And Paul told us, as he spoke about the same subject in Galatians chapter 5, in Galatians chapter 5, verse 1, Paul said, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ has made us free, and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. And so for, it's very easy for us to get caught up with so many different things and live under a set of rules that we're, we're living by rules instead of the liberty we have in Jesus Christ. When Jesus saved you and I, he delivered you and I from the bondage of sin, the bondage of self, Satan, and society. Now, that does not mean that you and I will not be bothered. That does not mean that you and I will not be tempted. That does not mean that you and I will not have a tendency to sin. But the Bible reminds us today that as we live for Jesus Christ, we're faced with a lot of decisions. Perhaps the biggest one right now that you find in modern-day Christianity, what I call contemporary Christianity, is, is kind of where the people draw the line in terms of, you know, how far do you go in being in the world and being of the world. And the Bible reminds us that we must not use our liberty as a license to sin. Now, if you read the book of Jude, Jude addresses that right up front. Because part of the apostasy, or part of the falling away of our generation, is you're seeing a tendency, a very strong tendency, a very much leaning by Christians, even Baptists, where they're using their liberty as a license for sin. Churches that once took a very strong, separated biblical stand, separate, a biblical stand of separation have now kind of erased the lines of demarcation there, and they've kind of just said, well, you know, this doesn't offend me, and I feel I can do this, and I can do that. And they've established a whole new different set of standards that are not necessarily biblical-based. They've added to, in my opinion, they've added to the Word of God. Jude 1.4 tells us we're not to turn the grace of God into lasciviousness, and that's important. The Bible reminds us that grace is not a license Yes, we're under grace, and yes, we have freedom, but we're not to use our grace to allow us to go on to the things that we used to. I remember years ago that uh, when I just got out of college and a friend of mine invited me over to have lunch with him in downtown Oakland, we met with another friend of his who had just become a new Christian, and he was just explaining his experience with another new Christian that he had and how that other new Christian that he, that he knew was still living in, in sins of immorality and just going about it. And he said, well, I'm a, I'm a Christian right now, and Jesus forgives me my sins, so I could go in and do that. And it, and it took a long time to correct that new believer that that is not what we're supposed to be doing. And using that example, I would just say, you know, when we're going off and doing the same things we did before, even though we may have repented at the point of conversion and told God we mean well, but the, the tendency is that we still have these temptations and our flesh is still weak and we need to grow in the Lord. Notice what the Bible says concerning the, 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 the temptations we have and, strength, and problems like that. Notice 1 Corinthians 10, 13. <coughs> because God wants us to live a life that is walking in the Spirit. Now, God gives you, gives you and me help in verse 13. Very familiar passage. I'm not necessarily going to preach that verse tonight because we've preached it many times before. But he gives us a wonderful promise in the midst of all this because in the midst of our liberty, there is temptation. There's temptation to sin. And he says here in this promise in verse 13, there, is, there hath no temptation taken you but such as is common to man. He says, but God is faithful who will not suffer you to be tempted above that you are able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape that you may be able to bear it. Now that's a wonderful promise. It's a powerful promise. It's a promise 
promise every Christian should memorize. If you're a new believer, you're just starting off in the faith, one of the things we encourage new believers to do is to memorize Scripture. 1 Corinthians 10, 13 should be at the top of the list of verses that you memorize. And we, we teach children, we teach teenagers, that is a verse that people should memorize. Notice what he says there. He tells us, first of all, that God is faithful to us in the midst of our temptation. God will not allow you to be tempted above what you're capable of receiving. God knows our, our, our breaking point. And God will never allow temptation in our life that, that, will, that, that is beyond our breaking point. The Bible says God will make a way with the temptation. He will, the temptation, make a way of escape that we may be able to bear it. Now, sometimes we think the way of escape may be, I'm going to be able to flee from it. No, a lot of times God is trying to grow you in his grace that you may be able to bear it, that you withstand it. There are things we need to flee from, and there are temptations we must take a strong stand in. And I believe a lot of times when we read this verse, we must understand God has made a way of escape for us, and that's a wonderful promise for us. This means you can withstand it. This means that you can be strengthened in your faith and knowing that God wants to see victory in your life. He is faithful. But I want to say something else. As we look at the matter of liberty, I think it's important to break this up. We have to look at the fact of, the, of, of this matter of Christian freedom and obedience. Christian freedom and obedience. Now, <clears throat> I've been saved I'll, this December. I'll be going on, let me think here, 49 years I've been a Christian. That's a long time. I still remember the day I got saved. I still remember when I became a Christian, and when I was a Christian, and five years later, I thought, man, it's been five years since I became a believer. I, I remember the year when I said it's been 20 years and 30 years. You know, 49 years as a believer, I just tell you this, I, I, I've seen some things, enough things about how we live our lives. And I want to tell you tonight, I believe even among the midst of the great Christians of Heritage Baptist Church, Many Christians struggle in the area of obedience. We struggle in that area. There are some Christians who just by nature are very strongly rebellious. And their tendency is like the theme of the book of Judges. Every man did that which is right in his own eyes. They have to buck the trend. They have to go different from the current. They, they want to rebel. And sometimes, in many cases, I believe, this kind of believer who struggles with rebellion has a seared conscience towards doing what is biblically right. A lot of times, if you have to tell somebody what's right when they know it's right, because the Bible says if you know to do right and do it not, it's sin, they may outwardly do what you ask them to do, but inwardly they're still fighting it. So there's a Christian who, is, who struggles with rebellion because they just have not given full control to the Lord. There's a, Christian, there's a Christian who approaches obedience with a checklist of do's and don'ts. I think a lot of people I know in Baptist circles do that. They live by a, a, a checklist of do's and don'ts. They want to know. They, want, they live for the approval of other people. And so they take these rules and standards to be the law by which they live, and they expect other people to do the same. And then there's a Christian who obeys out of the fear of failing. They're fearful of failing, so they do it. But I think, I think tonight I want to say this. There, it is possible for us to obey God with the right spirit. And it's possible for us to obey and be uninhibited in obedience and maximize our Christian freedom. Because there's a correlation between obedience and Christian freedom. There is a way. And Jesus taught us that. He tells us in John chapter 14, verse 15, If you love me, keep my commandments. That sounds so basic. 
but probably one of the least verses preached on because so many Christians get caught up with rules and standards and they have to have laws and sets of do's and don'ts or they struggle with rebellion. I remind you tonight, obedience is a reflection of your relationship with God's Son, Jesus Christ. It's all about what kind of relationship you have. He says, if you love me, keep my commandments. And then in 1 John 5, 3, Jesus, the Bible says this, for this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not Grievous. Let me tell you something tonight. It is not hard to keep the laws if you love America. It is not hard to keep the laws if you, if you want to abide by a penal code. You, you, know, you, you just say, you know, I love our city, I love our town, and it's not hard to live for Jesus Christ. If you love him, you're going to do what Jesus says you ought to do. I mean, it's as simple as that. I think all this struggle people have is because they're interpreting, perhaps the preacher says something, they're interpreting that's the preacher's law. Listen, no preacher has a law except the law of God. And no preacher has a right to add to the word of God. Every preacher should preach, thus saith the Lord. And I'm going to tell you tonight, especially all of you watching by live stream tonight, if you're struggling in the area of obedience, if you have a rebellion nature, you need to get a full dosage, I mean a complete dosage of John 14, 15 and 1 John 5, 3 and realizing God's commandments are not grievous for us. We need God's love to work in us. The struggle is not God's problem. The struggle is our problem because we allow rebellion to settle within us. Now notice this. Not only does he talk about temptation as we lead into this matter of freedom, because I'm kind of, I'm kind of, I'm going to give you the background of this passage. I'm going to give you, give you our lesson in just a minute. We go back to verse 14 now. In chapter 10, verses 1 to 12, when we started this chapter, Paul, in addressing the matter of Christian liberty, took us back to the Old Testament to three or four incidences relating to the nation of Israel and how Israel, um, they didn't do very well through temptations. And the Bible says that they were overthrown in the wilderness. And he said in verse 12, Let every man take heed where he standeth, lest he fall. And God's telling us this matter of liberty, how we conduct ourselves. How do you make the right decision for Jesus Christ? Let every man take heed how he standeth, lest he fall. We need to be careful of the sins of presumption. We need to be very careful that we don't say that well, I'm stronger than that. You may not be. Peter said that and he fell. And the biggest struggle that Israel had, and the same struggle that Paul is addressing at the church at Corinth, was the problem of idols, idolatry. Israel had lived in Egyptian bondage for 400 years. You live in that stuff for a long period of time, Egyptian society seeps into your life. God was very strong when he, went to, when he brought them into the wilderness as he took them out of Egypt. The very first thing he did, he, as they got out to Mount Sinai, they're just in the first month or two there. They got to Mount Sinai there, and he sent, and Moses went up there, and he gave them the Ten Commandments, and he wrote them with the finger of God. And the first two commandments, first three commandments, is dealing with the matter of dealing with, with idolatry, because they, they may have came out of the country of idolatry, but idolatry was still in their heart. And we know that later on, because in chapter 32, they made this golden calf that they worshipped and took their clothes off and danced in front of them. The Corinthian society was one plagued with idols. 
People were saved out of idolatry. One of the biggest challenges the Corinthian believers were dealing with was food offered to idols. They were trying to figure out where they should draw their line. Idolatry was a spiritual stronghold in the lives of Corinthian believers. There was one Christian who went through discipleship, as we would call it, a new foundation type of class and ground the faith, and he came to the conclusion through that teaching what was taught in chapter 8. Idols are nothing. Idols are nothing. You know, idols, idols are just, they're nothing to you and me. But then there's the other Christian who is new to the faith or struggled with anything associated with idols because they were an idol worshiper. They struggled with that. They felt like burning their idols or forsaking their, ban- their idols. They were abandoning their ancestors and things like that. I mean, people still have this struggle today if they come out of, a, they come out of an idolatrous background. And these believers were, were people we would call uh, believers with a weak conscience. They were very weak. And they, if they saw somebody else eating food that was offered to idol, they, they, because they knew the idol was nothing and, and the food was, that the God is the maker of all things and the food was okay to eat, they had no problem with that because they knew the idol was nothing. But this believer with a weak conscience had a problem with that. And they felt like, man, this is, I, I feel like this brother is making me sin there. And, then, and so then these believers who had a weak conscience, their, their conscience were wounded, and they became reserved, and they became critical. Worst case scenario, they dropped out of church. So Paul gets this letter. And I want you to think of me leading up to chapter 10 here. Paul spends three chapters dealing with the exercise of Christian liberty. He spent more time on this or probably just as much time he did in this as he did in the area of morality in chapters 5, 6, and 7. And so the first thing Paul does in verse 14, he tells him, my dearly beloved, flee idolatry. He says, listen, you're in a society where idols are everywhere. You're going to be tempted to bow. I'm going to remind you, Christian, we live in an idolatrous world. You're being tempted to bow. Some of you are being tempted right now or being misled to bow to flags other than the United States of America. And I imagine today, the United States of America, the flag represents our liberty. Whatever characterization that the liberals and the radical left are given of it, that is not what this country was founded upon. Red represents the blood of those who died for our country. White represents honor. Blue represents glory. I remind you tonight, they may want you to bow to a different flag, but I'm going to tell you there's a different flag. There's a greater flag than that. That's the flag of heaven. And I remind you tonight, the flag of heaven, I think the Baptist flag is pretty close to that. Amen? I believe the, ba- the flag of heaven, listen, the Lord Jehovah Nisi is my banner. And I remind you today, you are, you are being, cons- con- being tempted on all levels to bow these different types of things there. Those are not liberties there. You need to realize today that there's only one person we bow to, and that's Jesus Christ. So he said, flee idolatry. He says, I realize you're in a society where you're being tempted to bow these idols everywhere. And I remind you today, we are under so much pressure in this society we live in. Our idolatries are much different. Christian friend, I want to encourage you this evening. Don't bow to the idol of humanism. Don't bow to the idol of materialism. Don't bow to the idol of schisms. There's all kinds of isms. Be careful tonight that you're not bowing to these various types of idols or trying to draw your attention. Second thing he did, he said, don't, he said flee idolatry. But notice verses 15 to 22. Verses 15 to 22, he's emphasizing the need for a clean break and departure from, the, from what I call dual worship. Dual worship, D-U-A-L. 
You read these verses, verse 15 to 22, here's what's going on. The believers, there were some believers, and he emphasized, and he talked about in verse 21, that were fellowshipping at the Lord's table and fellowshipping at the, at the, at the, at, at, uh, the tables of idols. And he begins this by talking about the Lord's Supper. He says this in verse 15. I speak as to wise men. He's playing on words here because they should have known all about this. And, and when he was with them, because remember, he was at Corinth for at least 18 months, maybe a little bit longer there. So he had, for Paul, 18 months was a long time for him to be at a church. I mean, he had church every single day. Let me just say this to you today. You know, people are talking about, I'm looking back to going back to church as normal. I'm going to tell you something tonight. Church is not going to be back to normal. If you haven't figured this out, our governor has shut down the state for the rest of the year. He shut down everything under bogus numbers that are not really existent there. Go check out the CDC and go look at their website. They, they finally came out what we knew all along. They said that only 6% of all the, the fatalities that have happened with them, all, it's only 6% of the fatalities are attributed truly to COVID. The rest had other underlying conditions or were elderly people that had underlying other situations that were probably would, would have resulted in their passing already there. And I'm not making light of that. I'm just saying today, they're using the numbers to deceive people. Listen, I learned a long time ago, Numbers don't lie, but liars use numbers. And remind you tonight, we've got to realize that things are being shut down right now, and we need to get things re-back open. We need to get, but the new normal, there's not, it's not going to be normal like it was before. Church is going to be different. We're not going to let it inhibit us. We're not going to let it stop, to stop us. But I want you to realize tonight, church is going to be much different how we do things. And so he said here that they need to make a clean break. And so he says, I speak to wise men, judge ye what I say. And he starts off by helping us understand the, the essence in verses 16 to uh, verse, verse 16 to 17 about the matter of the Lord's Supper. Now he gets more into that in the next chapter. But he's talking about here, if you look at verse 16, he says this, the cup of blessing which we bless, is it not, notice the word, the communion of the blood of Christ. And the bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? You know what he was saying there? He was saying something that, that, that they understood, but you know, perhaps in our modern day Christianity we've gotten a little bit away from. The word communion is where we get our word fellowship from. It's the word koinonia. Now koinonia, unfortunately, has, been, has taken a different twist because some new evangelical Christian groups have liked to take the word koinonia to coin it after their, uh, to, as a name for one of their Bible studies and one of their fellowships and one of their groups there. And everybody thinks koinonia or fellowship is when we socialize. Well, I'm going to tell you tonight that in true Christian fellowship, true Christian fellowship is not about socializing. True Christian fellowship is not talking about sports and politics and your career and your job, what kind of car you drive and where you went for dinner and all that. True Christian fellowship from the Bible standpoint is when Jesus Christ is at the center of our fellowship. And the only way Jesus Christ can be at the center of our fellowship is when we're having prayer time and when we're having Bible time and we're having preaching time and we're talking about Jesus and we're elevating Jesus Christ and we're talking about doing the work of the Lord and exalting Christ. It's not about all this other peripheral stuff. It's all about Jesus Christ there. So he said in verse 16, he said, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? He said, listen, don't you realize when you have the Lord's table, the Lord himself is personally meeting with you and having fellowship with you? Now, don't, don't take verse 16 and say, well, that's teaching transubstantiation. That is not teaching transubstantiation. Transubstantiation is a Catholic doctrine that says, that it's a false doctrine that basically says when you take the Lord's table, that that bread and, that, and, that, and the contents of the cup, it turns literally into the body and blood of Jesus Christ. You're cannibalizing Jesus Christ. That is not what the Bible's teaching. By the way, there are those in evangelical circles that teach a transubstantiation. Okay, I'm going to tell you right now, transubstantiation is a heresy. It is not found in the Word of God. 
It's a misinterpretation in John chapter 6. Jesus said, when you partake of me, he wasn't talking about cannibalizing him, and he wasn't talking about transubstantiation. He's saying, if you want to get saved, you've got to take all of Jesus. You can't have a piece of Jesus. You've got to have all of Jesus in order to be saved. Just read the other day of a, I might mark him tonight, a very prominent author right now, former pastor who's out in the circles there, who was asked about transubstantiation. His name is Francis Chan. And these are his very words. I haven't landed yet as to where I stand on transubstantiation. I'd put no faith in some lake who doesn't know his Bible about that. He's got a following that's humongous. Whatever he lands, which just by that statement tells me he's going to probably land and say he believes in transubstantiation because he's listening to those voices who have gone that way. That's why I would just encourage you, you've got a bunch of books by new evangelicals, you probably should just throw them away. But what he's saying here, when we take the cup and we eat the bread, he said, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? What are you saying there? Do you remember when, they had, when the Lord instituted the Lord's Supper at the, at that, at that evening? There was a solemnness in that room. The closest those believers felt towards Jesus Christ as he said, take, eat, this is my body which is offered for you. Take this and drink the cup that is offered for you. There was an elevation of just the sense of the fellowship and the holiness and the solemnness of that time. It's a special communion. That's why we call it sometimes communion. Because it ought to bring us to a sense of the fellowship of the Lord. But then there were believers, as he talked about that. And by the way, verse 17, he says, For we being many are one bread and one body. And I like what he said there. And he's talking in the local church context. Please do not read verse 17 and we get to chapter 12. Do not take some of these verses and say that applies to Christianity as a whole in a general sense. Then, then you're teaching a universal church doctrine. This is talking about to a local New Testament church and that local New Testament church is the church at Corinth. We are a local church. We're not universal church if you haven't figured that out. He said, he's talking about here when we come together in the Lord's table, that in itself promotes a spirit of unity and oneness because Christ died for all. Then in verse 18, he talks about eating of the sacrifices. Those, they were partakers of the altar. And he goes down a little bit further and he wants them to understand something. We read, read the rest of these verses. There were believers who got saved out of idolatry, who were in the church at Corinth. They were saved, baptized members of the church. They take the Lord's table, but on the side, they go into these heathen temples and would take the cup of the devil. That's what he called it. He'd take their version of, of the Lord's table. Because even pagans said, pagans believe this. This is what the pagans taught, the idol worshipers. When, you, when we have our pagan tables, we have fellowship with our devil. Literally, they're saying we're opening ourselves for demon possession. Look what he says in verse 20. 20, uh, verse 20. But I say 
that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to devils and not to God. And I would not that you should have fellowship with devils. He's saying here, okay, look. Some of you believers have exercised your liberty to an extreme. It's one thing to eat food or beverage. In this case, I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm, I'm not referring to wine. I'm talking about grape juice or whatever. It's one thing to eat something that's offered there and realize you have the liberty to eat it because the idol's nothing. But to purposely go to the temple and to sit down at their worship time and to take their version of the devil, what they would call the devil's table. Jezebel had her form. She had Jezebel's table. He said, don't you realize you're having fellowship with demons? Now, let me use an example. That would be like someone getting saved out of Buddhism and going back to the Buddhist temple and participating food offered to, to their ancestors and saying, you know, and participating in that and saying, it's nothing. They went too far. Because by doing so, they're double dipping, if I can say. They're having dual worship. They're worshiping at God's table and having fellowship with Jesus Christ. And they're worshiping at the devil's table and having fellowship with the demonic entities. Let's look at verse 21, 22, 21. He says, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of the devil. Now that right there in its liberty, Paul is putting a line of demarcation. You can't have both. You have to have a clean break. You cannot be partakers of the Lord's table and of the table of the devils. And then he said in verse 22, do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Don't you realize? That's like a man who has two wives. A man that has two wives, he's provoking both of them to jealousy. He says, don't you understand? If you're still participating in the things that you should have forsaken, abandoned, and then you're, and then you, then you're still participating in that, and then you're going back to the Lord's table, don't you realize we're stirring God up? We're provoking God to jealousy? He said, preacher, what's that got to do with liberty? I'm going somewhere. Paul is addressing liberty with these people, and I'm going somewhere. I'm going to get to our application in just a minute. He's telling them, you are such an extreme. You are, you've exercised your liberty. He says, you can't, he says, you, you've compromised to a point. You can't fellowship with devils and fellowship with Christ. Now, Let's go back for a minute to chapter 8. Paul is saying all that to reinforce what we studied in chapter 8. The right use of our freedom when it comes to eating food offered to idols. The first thing he does, notice he repeats in verse 23 something he said in chapter 8. He said in verse 23, all things are lawful for me, but all things are not expedient. All things are lawful for me, but all things edify not. He was saying there, it might be okay to go there to do it, but it's not expedient. It's not in the best interest of everyone. It might not be the most appropriate thing. And he says, not all things edify. He said in verse 24, let no man seek his own, but every man is another's one. Here's our problem with Christian liberty. It's every man doing that which is right in his own eyes and not judging according to the Scriptures. Is God pleased by this? Is God glorified through this? We'll see that in verse 30, 30 uh, later on. Is God, verse 31, is God glorified through this? Is God honored through this? So first of all, he talked about what's expedient and what, what edifies. Secondly, we have to consider what's in the best interest of the conscience of the other person. He said again in verse 24, we're not to seek our own, but every man another one. Now here's the thing about the church. Here's what's hard. Here's what's hard. 
once we get involved with responsibilities and ministries and decision-making, we start realizing that decision-making capabilities, discernment, judgment of things, what I call discernment, we're not all the same. Some are quick, some are slower, some are strategic, some are not. And our tendency is, especially in a church where there's a lot of professionals or business owners, our tendency is, is we move so quickly that we leave everybody else behind in a trail of dust. And at the end of the day, excuse me for saying this, we don't care who we offend. We don't care who we hurt as long as we get our way across. Now look at verse 24. In the matter of the practice of Christian liberty, he says, let no man seek his own. In other words, it's not about my agenda. And it's not about what I feel I ought to do. In the bigger picture of things, the bigger scope of things, he says, but let every man seek another man's God. In other words, is what I'm doing and how I'm saying it and what I'm doing, is it edifying or is it tearing down? Now, Paul, he got all the reports was going to the church of Corinth. It was a mess. When I, when I tell you what I'm saying here, this is why that church was in, what had division problems and schisms. Because it got to the point there was no orderliness. There was disrespect of leadership. There was usurping of leadership. And that's a big problem in churches today, usurping of leadership. So Paul said, let no man seek his own, but every man is another's wealth. Now, to support this rule he's bringing up here, we need to consider food offered idols from different scenarios. Scenario number one, and he brings it up here um, in verse 25. Scenario number one, if you buy meat at the marketplace, the shambles, most likely it was offered to idols, okay? Do I not eat it or do I eat it? I'm going to starve. I mean, if everything's offered, what am I going to starve, right? And look at verse 25. Whatsoever is sold in the shambles, the marketplace, that eat. He gave them permission. He says, you have liberty to eat it. Ask you no questions. Don't ask where it came from. Now today we have, we have, uh, we have uh, so-called administrations that are supposed to guarantee that your food is safe. Okay, I'm not really sure about that, amen, you know. But he said, you don't have to ask where it came from. I mean, now, today, you, you might be concerned whether or not it's organic or plant-based or whatever it might be on your meat, but he said, you, see, you don't have to ask. Just, just eat it. It's sold in the shambles. You know it was, probably sold, it was probably offered to idols, but just eat it. He said, it's okay. He said, you don't have to have a bad conscience about it. That's okay. That's in, that's in, the, that's in the, the scope of the liberty you have in Jesus Christ. Second scenario. He said in verse 20, 27, if an unbeliever, an unsaved person, uh, second sentence, excuse me, if an unbeliever invites you to a feast and you fill out a respect of that relationship you want to attend, he says, you can attend. And he said in verse 27, he says, you be, if you be disposed to go, whatsoever is set before you, eat. Ask you no questions for conscience sake. Now he said here, okay, 
unbeliever invites you to a feast. He may have offered his meat to idols. He may have had a ceremony to, to his gods, his worship, before you got there or, bef- or when you were there. He said, you don't have to feel like that food is tainted. He says, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. He said, you can eat that food. It's fine. You're not sinning against God. And you're not sinning against your own conscience. Now, he established that there, okay? But thirdly, he said, but, in verse 28, if they tell you, this unbeliever tells you it was offered and sacrificed, if he tells you this, he's telling you because he wants to see how far you can exercise your liberty. And he's telling you because he, he knows that if you eat it, as far as where he's at, his conscience will be wounded, he'll feel disturbed, and you're going to push him away from getting saved. Now, Paul, look what he says about that in verse 28. Paul said here, But if any man has sent you, this is offered in sacrifice to idols, eat not for a sake that showed it, and for conscience. He says, okay, here's, here's the rule of thumb. If you know that person is in that category, you probably shouldn't eat it. Not even probably, just don't eat it. You just tell him, you know what, I don't want to offend you. I don't want to offend you, so I'm not going to eat it. Now, The eating of what is offered to idols underscores a key principle of Christian liberty and freedom. Again, go back to verse 23. This is important as we evaluate what we do. All things are lawful. All things are lawful. Not all things are expedient. Expedient means it's not profitable. All things are lawful for me, but all things edify not. You have to weigh and judge if what you do, where you go, and how you conduct yourself, if it's going to offend and wound the conscience of a younger believer, of an immature believer, of a believer who has a weaker conscience. So now I want you to go down with me and look at verse 29. Paul said, conscience I say, not thine own, but of the other. For why is my liberty judged of another man's conscience? Now, I'm going to bring this all together. We're going to almost be done here in a few minutes. How am I supposed to use my liberty as we close off this chapter? There's a wide range of freedom We are allowed into the grace of God. There are borders. There are lines we're not supposed to cross. But how how do I exercise my freedoms in Jesus Christ? I'm going to give you three things tonight. In verses 31 to 33, Paul gives us simple, meaningful, I'll say liberating and encouraging advice Three things we must do in the exercise of our liberty. Number one, would you write this down? Number one, we must use our liberty for good. We must use our liberty for good. Do not use your liberty as an occasion to offend or hurt other people. Notice what he says in verse 33. Excuse me, verse 32. 
Give none offense, neither to the Jews, nor to the Gentiles, nor to the church of God. The church at Corinth, like most of the churches Paul ministered to, had Jews and Gentiles. Jews were strict adherents to the law. Their big problem was all the years of accumulative training they had in the law. Does the law allow this? Does the law allow that? The Jews had strict laws concerning foods that were clean and unclean. Um, unsaved Jews had to, be, they had to be careful that they did not make an unsaved Jew stumble from the truth. There were saved Jews grounded in the faith who were pro- didn't have problems with things. But, but he's saying he was concerned about his own brethren, the Jews, because he knew their tendencies, what would make them stumble. There were Gentiles. Gentiles were saved out of a pagan background. I mean, Corinth was that pagan background. The whole, the whole island of Greece. You had, you had Athens on one side. You had Corinth on the other side. Paul said, giving none offense. Paul uses that phrase in Acts 24, 16. He says, his conscience was void of offense. In Philippians 1.10, he said, we are to be without offense till the day of Christ. He said here, giving none offense. He says, we must be very careful not to give offense or even be offensive to the Jew, to the Gentile. But I want to focus on this. He says, nor to the church of God. Now, when Paul dealt with the Gentiles, back at Jerusalem, in Acts chapter 15, they were dealing with, with, these, with these Gentile believers that got saved at the church at Antioch, and the church at Jerusalem now is embracing these Gentile believers, and they're giving encouragement. And so James and the church at, at Jerusalem gave this encouragement. He said this. He told Paul and Barnabas now. He said this in Acts 15, verse 19, 20. Wherefore my sentence is that we trouble not them which from among the Gentiles are turned to God, but that we write unto them that they abstain from pollution of idols and from fornication and from things strangled into blood. He said, now let's make it very clear. We want them to know exactly where the borderlines are, where they're not supposed to cross. So he says, giving not offense to the Jew, nor to the Gentile. Let's go back to the church of God. Nor to the church of God. The church at God, the church at Corinth was a wounded church. It was so wounded, I can use this, this analogy, it was bleeding. It was bleeding from division, from weaker consciences being offended, from people being hurt. And so Paul now saves it up. He gives all these, he goes through all these, these, these iterations in chapters 8, 9, and 10. We get to verse 32, and he says, Give none offense to the church of God. Now, brother and sister in Christ, I want to encourage you tonight. We just came off a wonderful missions conference. Amen. I mean, it was a great missions conference. It was refreshing. It was a blessing to see God's people assemble and see the tears in people's eyes who came to church for the very first time, albeit it was outside and so forth there. And people just enjoyed it and soaked it up and and loved every bit of it there. And I remind you tonight, the the church of Jesus Christ is his bride, not your bride. And I remind you tonight, we're to do good 
to the church of God. Let's say that together. We ought to do good to the church of God. Now, I want to tell you some things tonight. Paul already did dealt with the myriad of sins and problems of the church at Corinth. Number one, we must do good through our words. Go with me to Colossians 4, 6. Colossians 4, 6, and as you turn there, I'd like you to read that out loud with me. Colossians 4, 6. Let's read that out loud together, would you please? Let your speech be always with grace, seasoned with salt, that ye may know how you ought to answer every man. Now, in the church, we communicate through various means. We communicate through preaching. We communicate through singing. We communicate through greeting and handshaking. We communicate through necessities. We communicate through praying. We communicate through involvement. Do good to the church through your words. May I encourage you tonight? Don't attack the church. Don't attack the church or its people. You're someone that's prone to making accusations, stop it. You're in sin. Stop attacking the church. Do good through the church, through your words. When I talk about church, I'm talking about his people. They're not your people. They're God's people. Do good to the church through your words. Don't attack it. Don't abuse the church or its people. Today, the big, the big word out there in, in the job site is someone that's very, very hard on other people. They're called a bully. I'm going to tell you, churches have bullies too. And bullies need to stop bullying on people and pushing their weight around and acting like they own the church. It's like a preacher said to me. He saw a guy strutting his way around our church one day. He says, who is this guy over there? He acts like he owns the church. I feel like I need to go up to him and tell him a word or two. I said, brother, it's okay. He'll get over it. Don't abuse the church. You're not, you're, not God's, you're not God's gatekeeper. Don't abuse the church. That's not your business. Satan is the accuser of the brethren. That's what his name means. Don't you be accuser of the brethren, okay? Do good through your words. Secondly, do good through your works. Read the book of Titus. Chapter 3, over and over again, Titus makes mention of the importance of doing good works. Now, good works are not a prerequisite to salvation, Good works don't save you, but good works are a post-requisite to salvation. Good works give a demonstration that you're saved. Hey, listen, you ought to be some, if you're really saved, you want to do good work for Jesus Christ. You want to serve the Lord. You want to do something for Christ. You want to do the right thing for Christ. And if you don't have that desire, I would question whether or not, did you really get saved? Notice what he says in Titus chapter 3, verse 1. He says, be ready to every good work. Notice what he said in Titus 3.14. And let ours also learn to maintain good works for necessary uses that they be not unfruitful. Don't attack the church. Don't abuse the church. Hey, listen, in our works, don't abandon the church. You should be a tither. You should enthusiastically be involved with faith promise missions. At a minimum, the monthly pledges. I mean, I don't know if you get it. But through faith promise missions, you, have, you are making investment and you have a part in helping missionaries 
who are an extension of our church and many others. And when he shows Christ, I don't know if you got this. I shared this on Sunday night. And this is an underreported number because we, there's numbers that, that some of our missions don't really have a handle on. There were 37,000 professions of faith, 37,000 people around the world that trusted Jesus Christ as their Savior because of mission. I'm thinking about Brother Justin Hayes in Spain. That work is just taking off and people are getting saved. I'm thinking about, I'm thinking about over in India, Brother Sam Thomas. He's stuck here in the United States. He asked me to preach a chapel service for his, for his preachers there by Zoom later in October. But I'm thinking about the hundreds and hundreds of pastors he's got in Kerala and places like that are very dangerous. Their souls getting saved. I'm thinking about Sri Lanka where souls are getting saved. I'm thinking about up in Mongolia where Jason Richie's on his souls getting saved. I'm thinking about the slowness of the work in Japan, but souls still getting saved. I'm thinking about the propagation of the gospel in the Philippines Islands and souls getting saved. I don't know if you get it or not. We have a part. God is adding food to our account because we stepped out and are participating by faith in helping see souls saved through faith promise missions. Nobody that's participating in faith promise missions should have any regrets that they're involved with it. Those are good works. You should participate in building offerings and other special needs. You should participate in soul winning, witnessing, making assists, distributing tracts. You should participate in church cleaning and maintenance projects. You should be praying for your church. That's a, hey, by the way, that's the work everybody should be doing. Amen? Don't be part of the crowd that says, let somebody else do it. Don't be part of the crowd that says, I'm getting tired of doing that. Our attitude should be, what can I do to be of help? I got several messages after this conference. Pastor, what can I do to help the church? I want to get back involved. I want to do something. What can I do? Use your liberty for good. Amen? Number two, use your liberty for God. Look at verse 31. Whether therefore you eat or drink, remember the context is idols, but it has a broad application. Whether you eat or drink, or whatsoever you do, I like how he covered all his bases there, amen? Or whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God. Living the Christian life is not that difficult. If you understand, you were supposed to be doing it for the glory of God. It raises the bar. It increases the standard. The guideline for the exercise of Christian liberty is we use it for good, but we use it for God. I mean, I don't know about you, but the greatest area we're going to all be that God's going to zone in on is the judgment seat of Christ about you and me. Did we do it for the glory of God? Did He get the glory? Did he get the honor? Does he get the praise? If you, if you can't do something for Jesus without saying praise the Lord, your heart's messed up. Your heart's messed up, okay? And you need to get out. You need to get out of that ministry because you, you've lost it there. You, you need to have an attitude. It's a joy to serve Jesus Christ. Let me give you some thoughts here. Number one, God is glorified when our heart is undivided. In verses 16 to 21, we just talked about that. There was dual worship. Did you get what's going on there? There was double allegiance. They participated in the Lord's table and the devil's table. They had communion or fellowship. They were having fellowship with the Lord at the Lord's table. They were having fellowship with demons at, at the demon's table. 
Paul said in verse 21, would you notice this? He said, you cannot. You know who else said that? Elijah said that. He said, how long halt you between two opinions? You can't have a divided heart. It's either Jesus or somebody else. Give the Lord your heart's devotion. Amen? Give your best to the Lord. Give your all to the Lord. We need to glorify. God is glorified when our heart is undivided. Now, I may be talking to somebody tonight. You're straddling the fence. Man, I'm going to tell you right now, get off the fence and get on the side where Jesus is. Amen? Get on the side where Jesus is. Get on the side where the church Well, I don't agree with the church. You don't agree with the church because you don't agree with God. Get on the same side with God. Well, I don't like how we do missions. Well, I'm sorry you don't like how we do missions, and you want to be a maverick and do your own thing. But I'm going to tell you, there's a church way, and if you can't submit to the church, your problem's with God. Your problem's not with the church. Second, God is glorified when we're undivisive. God is glorified when, we're, when our hearts are undivided, but God is glorified when we are undivisive. Notice what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 14, 12. For even so, uh, even so ye, for as much as you're zealous of spiritual gifts, seek that ye may excel to the edifying of the church. The bigger picture is, is it building up the church? Is it to the benefit of the whole ministry? As we saw in chapters 1, 2, and 3, a divisive believer creates schisms in the body. We are commanded. It is not a preference. We are commanded to promote unity within the church. If we go back to 1 Corinthians 14, 12, and this is getting ahead of a future message. You, can, you and I could wind up using our spiritual gifts in a wrong way, and we wind up hurting the work of God. And you and I could use our personality in a wrong way and hurt the work of God. And you and I could use, we can take our preferences, and there's room for preferences, but we can take our preferences and use them in a wrong way, and we can hurt the work of God. Your gift and my gift was not meant to tear down. It was meant to edify and to build up. And thank God for people who've got experience and people who've got wisdom and people who've got knowledge, and people who, are, who, who use that for the glory of God. I mean, if whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. We must give God the glory by being undivisive. Thirdly, God is glorified when our hearts are undefiled. You know, if you do a word study in the word defiled or undefiled, it's very interesting what it ties into. The key things you find in your study is that the word bitterness pops up. Bitterness is a sin that defiles many. You cannot be bitter without affecting a lot of people. And I'll tell you right now, you can see the aftermath of a bitter person on a lot of, people's, on a lot of people because they're all going to have the same bad taste in their mouth having been around a bitter person. They feel the wrath. They feel the beating. Bitterness is a sin. Most Christians will not admit they have bitterness. But the truth is, we all have bitterness. It is a root 
that is hidden inside of all of us. It's a root that springs up. And you have to, you have to understand and discern your Christian life. This is where you need to read Hebrews chapter 12. You need to discern your Christian life. What is it that triggers that root to come up? Listen, one of the things I tell people about, I hate weeds. I, you know, I love rain, but I don't like what happens after the rain. When rain comes, it brings up all these ugly, nasty weeds. And there's, did you ever notice all the different variety of weeds? They're the ones that come up, and then the ones that have all these prickly things on it. And I mean, they're just, I hate weeds. And you know, for, as far as I'm concerned, you've got to pluck weeds out. I realize when there's a lot of them, you may not have time. You take a weed whack, you whack it out, but you didn't take the root. You got to, you, it, so it comes back up again. Listen, for a lot of us, that root is hidden, and something triggers it. Something rains on your life. Something comes in and it saturates, and then that, that bitterness comes out, and it never goes away. Listen, you've got to deal with that bitterness, and that's what the Bible tells us. We need to pursue holiness without which no man shall see God. Bad actions provoke bad actions. And so I want you to understand, go back to context here, chapter 10. Believers who had a weak conscience that was offended and fell away from the Lord, you know what happened there? They became casualties. They didn't come back to church. They struggled with a weak conscience. Every time they saw a believer who should have known better, who was more mature, supposedly more mature, much more knowledgeable, who was sinning against things, I mean, basically hurt their conscience. Sins of the flesh and sins of the spirit, and Paul talks about this later on in 2 Corinthians 7. They're defiling in the church. Jesus said in Matthew 15, 11, that which cometh out of the mouth, this defileth the man. James says the tongue is a fire, will of iniquity. It defileth the whole body. Use your liberty for good. Use your liberty for God. Quickly, we need to end. Notice verse 33. We need to use our liberty for the gospel. Even as I please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of many that they may be saved. I wish I had time just to preach this verse by itself. Paul said, I please all men in all things. That's kind of an interesting thought. Not seeking my own profit, but the profit of many. They might be saved. Use your liberty to advance the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's not saying we must compromise our beliefs or become worldly. A few years ago, a preacher was trying to desperately reach his area for, with the gospel. He started making a series of steps. He was moving further and further away. And so he decided when, I guess, the Star Wars series came out, he got in front of his church. He said, okay, church, I'm gonna, all of you, I bought tickets for all of you. We're all going to the opening of Star Wars. They all dressed up in Star Wars costumes, and there he put himself on, 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 on social media like that, and I looked at that, and I said, what a disgrace. I'll tell you right now, there's several problems with it, but I'll tell you right now, what you win them with is what you keep them with. And the farther you go away from what's acceptable and right biblically, the farther you're going to continue. It's the same context with music, okay? This, this whole nonsense of worship wars. I'm, I'm going to promise you something. In heaven, there will not be any worship wars, okay? 
There will not be any worship wars in heaven. Okay? You just have to have enough discernment to know where to draw a line. The problem is there's a little bit part, there's a part of our flesh that wants to gravitate towards the other side of things. We want to go back to what we got and came saved out. Hey, I know what I got saved out of, and I'm not planning to go back to that any time. And there's some, some believers who just, they want to go into something, maybe they never got exposed. They feel, well, that's what we got to do because it's pragmatic, because everybody's doing that. We don't have to compromise to win people to the gospel through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let me give you a couple of things. Number one, the core priority of our church is to see people saved, baptized, and added to the church. And that's very simple about the gospel. Our core priority is to see people saved, baptized, added to the church. It's not enough to give them the gospel and then abandon them. You need to get them saved baptized, and in the church. Because they're not fulfilling Matthew 20 and 19 if you're not doing it. And by the way, if you have no desire to see people saved, you ought to get yourself on, the, you ought to get on your face tonight and ask God to forgive you that you're not, you don't have a heart of compassion for souls. Now our court, our church, every ministry of our church is about winning souls. Probably some not as strongly as I like, but the, the core strategy is about winning souls. Now, we have a lot of strategies we use to reach people for Christ. Some of our core strategies, there's preaching services. There's preaching in public places. And let me just say, nobody should despise preaching. We talked about that in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Paul said the foolishness of preaching. Listen, nobody here should despise any form of preaching. There's club and fellowship meetings. That's worked effectively for us. Um, you know, it's an extra night out. But it's effective in reaching kids, young people. We have witnessing we have door-to-door, -door, which right now we can't do. We can't go door-to-door -door knocking. We can door-to-door -door track, but we can't door-to-door -door bell, doorbell ringing and door knocking, but we can put tracks at their doors. There's track passing. There's making assists. I think a lot of our membership during COVID-19 have, have finally grasped on to just making assists, and I'm just thankful for that so we can try to move, move things along to try to win people to Christ. There's life events. There's hospital sickness visits. I mean, those are our core strategies. But listen, we not only have core strategies, we have creative strategies. We're trying, to, we're trying right now in COVID-19, we're trying to figure out how do we get involved with community events? How do we have a presence that we're, where it needs to be the right? Now, for instance, we're not going to be involved with a community event that's something where there's something that's unbiblical or there's something that perhaps has a, has a twist to it that is, that, that is not correct. There's food and meal help. Uh, we're praying about a situation right now. We're hoping this will open up. Somebody made this offer to me about 30, 60 days ago about when Thanksgiving comes, of the opportunity of perhaps of our church uh, getting a bunch of people together to help assemble between 500 and 1,000 meals for, uh, for seniors over 65 and then help with delivery of those meals. And I thought that'd be great. Let us have, uh, we'll do it. We'll have a bunch of people do that. And that gets us in the door literally to these people and trying to minister to them and finding who they are and going back to them. Uh, there's HBC Cares, which has been very effective in sowing a lot of seeds and giving us a lot of visibility. There's marriage and family. There's tutoring and schooling. There's podcasts and radio. There's a gospel in different languages. We're to be in the world, but not of the world. We don't have to change our music to be effective in winning souls. We don't have to change our Bible to be effective in winning souls. We don't have to change our, our dress then to be effective in winning souls. The Bible says, daily in the temple from every house, they cease not to teach and preach Jesus Christ. All I'm saying tonight is God has given us liberty. We're to stand fast in that liberty. Use your liberty for good. Use your liberty for God. And use your liberty for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Simple as that. Simple as that. You don't remember anything else. Remember those last three verses. Use your liberty for good. Use your liberty for God. Use your liberty for the gospel of Jesus Christ. How can we seek the profit of many that they can be saved? Write these things down. I don't think they're in your notes, but write them down. 
Number one, pray for open doors. Number two, be soul conscious. Number three, determine to give tracts everywhere you go as much as you can. Number four, be friendly. Do you ever notice most people outside are far from being friendly? Be friendly. Number five, this is a big one. Follow up. Follow up. Number six, remember that your goal is to get the gospel to them as soon as you can. It might take two or three tries, but your goal is to get the gospel to them as soon as you can. Number seven, don't take no for an answer. Number eight, have a lot of fish hooks in the water. You go fishing, you put a lot of lines out in the water. Number nine, here's the most important one, be filled with the Spirit. Use your liberty for the gospel of Jesus Christ. I pray tonight that God helped us just having clarification in terms of how we ought to live our life for the glory of God.